everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of UConn 360, the world's only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every angle. That's right, 20 episodes. Do we get candles or something? Cake? Cake. We should have brought cake. My name's Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me as always, Ken Best. That's me. Julie Bartuka. Hello. We've been together for 20 episodes now. That's 40 weeks. It's almost a full American year, and it's been a blast. (laughs) We have uh, a great program for you today. We're going to learn a lot. We're going we're gonna to laugh. We're going to learn. We are an educational institution. Uh, before we start, Julie uh, had something she wanted to say. Yes. Is that right? I do. Yeah. Um, in regards to a couple episodes ago, so sometimes we have a lot of fun here, as we know, and um, sometimes we have so much fun that we forget that there's real people, real feelings, real emotions that are in these stories that we do, and we end up oversimplifying things that are very rich and complex. So in episode 18, I took over the history corner and I shared the story of the closing of a student-run dorm, which was called the Intentional Democratic Community. We thought it was a great story, but we also made some jokes at the expense of the real people who lived there who were doing something pretty unique, kind of noble. And UConn 360 is a celebration of everything UConn. I hope you guys get that by now, Um, past and present. And the last thing we want to do is make anyone feel unwelcome in the UConn community. So we just wanted to extend some apologies to those who lived in the IDC for the way we portrayed their experience. We've been talking to a few members, and we have a follow-up in the works. We're going to share some of their stories of actually living there, not just of how it ended. And we can't wait to share that with you. So that's all. Why don't we get to headlines? Sure. Julie? Veterans released from prison are five times as likely to attempt suicide as their peers who have never been incarcerated, according to a study by researchers, including UConn Health epidemiologist Lisa Berry, which was recently published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. Barry and her colleagues decided to look at post-release outcomes for people over 50 since they are the fastest-growing segment of the prison population. A person's chance of death increases in the years immediately following release from prison regardless of their age, and because older prisoners tend to have less of a support network and have a harder time reintegrating into the workforce than average ex-prisoners, the researchers suspected that older prisoners were at a high risk of suicide attempts. So they used data from the Veterans Administration Suicide Prevention Application Network and medical records from Medicare and the VA of more than 14,000 people age 50 and older. And they found that veterans who had been incarcerated and then released from prison when they were older than 50 were five times more likely to try to kill themselves than their never-imprisoned counterparts. And adjusting for conditions like brain trauma, mental illness, and homelessness, all additional risk factors for suicide, those who had been imprisoned were still three times as likely to attempt suicide. So um, Barry and her colleagues are looking more closely at the healthcare services that these people use versus those who didn't attempt suicide. And they're trying to identify some risk factors and effective prevention strategies. Very important work. Very important work indeed. Uh, Ken, what's new? I knew w- that we had a Connecticut Transportation Institute operation here at UConn, but in my Johnny Carson moment, I did not know that uh, some of the work that they did uh, is being used in studies now. And with the clocks changing last week from daylight savings time back to standard time, uh, we're driving home. After dark, as we know. We, we don't like it, but we have to do it. So according to the American Automobile Association, that, who we know as AAA, that brings a risk of more accidents on the road. And we know for sure because AAA Northeast uh, has done a study using the Yukon Car Crash Data Repository, uh, which was established seven years ago by the engineers and IT staff at the Connecticut Transportation Institute, which, of course, is here uh, on campus. And that, that 
repository brings together information that was previously kept separatory by uh, the Department of Transportation, Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection, and, and local police departments across the state. The new study analyzed data from 2015 to 2017 and found that statewide motor vehicle crashes increased 45% from 5 to 6 p.m. when we're all on the road going home, uh, while pedestrian-related crashes nearly doubled after daylight savings time ends. Last year alone, more than 1,600 crashes due to drowsy driving, and last week was Drowsy Driving Awareness Week. So that's why the report came out. So you need to be careful when you're out on the road. Uh, if you're walking where something bright and uh, reflective, walk against the traffic if you're driving, make sure your headlights and your signals are working and pay attention on the road at intersections for people who may not be at the intersections. They may be crossing in the middle of the street, and you shouldn't do that. I hate driving home in the dark now. And it's funny. This year, it just really snuck up on me. I barely got my Drowsy Driving Awareness Week shopping done <laughs> in time. It's, it's earlier and earlier every year, it seems like. Uh, I don't have a news item this week, but I do want to thank everyone who came out to our live podcast. It was so much fun. As part of Homecoming Weekend. I want to thank uh, UConn Foundation, UConn alumni, for helping us out, helping us organize all that. And uh, to our guest, uh, Professor Margaret Rubega, Coach Jim Penders. And if you haven't listened to that yet, first of all, it'd be weird that you're listening to this, but you haven't heard that one yet. But <laughs> just in case, go back and listen to it. It's a lot of fun. It was good. Good stuff. Good interviews. Everybody seemed to have a good time. Mm-hmm. I did. Speaking of good times, Julie, you've uh, you've got a piece this week on uh, a professor who I actually had when I was a student here. Really? Cla- that's right. I didn't know that. And uh, always a popular class, always a popular professor. Yes. Tell us what we're going to hear. Um, so I'm not going to tell you too much because you'll learn about it in the piece, but uh, if you're a hip-hop head, you might want to listen up. I'm taking you inside a class offered here at UConn that might give you a new perspective on your favorite musical genre. So right here we have uh, Ice Cream Dead Home, which is a classic song. It's a very somber song. It is what Chuck D once said about hip-hop being the CNN for black America. He actually takes you to South Central LA. And of all the artists we talked about from the 1980s, like all the black artists in the 1980s, with all the problems we saw in cities, with crime, with unemployment, with poverty, with police brutality, with the drugs, the so-called war on drugs, all these people from all these genres of music were silent, except for hip-hop artists, right? And they take you there with first-person narratives and explain these things with such sagacity. And Ice Cube is, of course, the front line of that. What was also kind of interesting about this, this video is that it is, in some ways, like the video we saw of Common earlier in Chicago with people um, uh, dancing, with, with step dancing, it is ethnographic in some ways. In some ways, this is a time capsule. It shows you what South Central L.A. was like circa 1990. That's Jeffrey Ogbar, professor of history and director of UConn Center for the Study of Popular Music, after showing his class the music video for rapper Ice Cube's Dead Homies, a post-NWA song about friends who have fallen victim to gun violence. The video is one of many students watched during a recent meeting of Ogbar's class, Hip Hop, Politics, and Youth Culture in America, which he's taught since 1999. I am not trained in the history of music or ethnomusicology or cultural studies or anything that would make this seem logical to my professional career. (laughs) I am a 20th century U.S. historian. My first book is on the black power movement and black nationalism. I took no classes. They didn't exist, any class on hip hop when I was in undergrad or grad school. But my 
my, the sonic backdrop to my life had been hip hop since I was about nine years old. I loved it. it when I think about my, my first, um, first time I learned how to drive a car or my prom or playing sports, going off to college, parties, falling in love, you know, hip hop was always there. And I had so many debates with friends and everything. And then as I became an academic, I found that these conversations with friends who were academics or not tend to be very discursive and uh, intellectual in a way that I may not have anticipated as a teenager. It turned out hip-hop connected to Ogbar's professional life as an academic in more ways than he had thought. I gave a talk once years ago and when I was actually in graduate school on music in general and the ways in which music can be a reflection of the historical moment out of which the music emerges. And there was a student in the class who really enjoyed it and suggested that I expand that talk to a, a larger you know, public talk for consumption for Black History Month. So I did that and I actually focused on hip hop. And there was a professor at that talk who liked the talk and said, why don't you expand that for a scholarly article and publish it in a journal. So I did and that article came out in 1999 and it was on hip hop and the cultural wars looking at Robert H. Bork who was nominated for the Supreme Court and a book he wrote about Culture, cultural decline in the United States. That article ended up becoming a one-hit wonder article, and people started citing it. There was a very thin body of scholarship at the time on hip-hop. That article sort of blew up, and wow. the University Press of Kansas had a series on pop culture. They contacted me and thought, hey, that article is kind of cool. Would you consider writing a book, which became Hip Hop Revolution, very my cool. second book. And the, the process of teaching the class helped me write the book too because I got a chance to engage hip-hop from so many different way angles and perspectives and it became a interdisciplinary approach that I learned sort of as I went about it and we incorporated literary terms I didn't know what a uh, I don't know about intertextual allusions I didn't know about metonyms until I started teaching I actually talked to colleagues in the English department like okay. hey what's a term so I knew there, there, there was a wordplay going right, on. I right. knew there was a literary device but, but I think if you take like a hockey player who utilizes the laws of physics, he's not able to describe what he's doing, although he knows that it's important. And I think MCs were using these incredibly uh, complicated literary devices. I'm not sure they knew the names for them, I didn't. So I talked to some professional uh, English folks and they explained what these terms were. Very so that's cool. how I was able to introduce them to my students. That's awesome. And so it became really cool. The course goes beyond hip-hop as literature and explores the history of hip-hop and its musical predecessors and how the art form reflects race, class, and gender issues. It has evolved over the past 19 years to cover more topics as they gain relevance, such as gentrification in cities. In the class I attended a few weeks ago, Ogbar brought students through a discussion on how government policies influenced what cities look like. All right, so now, by the time hip-hop comes around, it comes around literally less than five, well, about five years after the government says you cannot, by law, they said it, doesn't mean that everyone all of a sudden, their moral, ethical compass changes because the law was passed, right? But hip hop actually comes together only five years after the federal government says you cannot redline and discriminate against people when it comes to housing. So you have huge chunks of the city already in place, right? By the time hip hop all of a sudden comes together. So you start to have people who can get out and move to other places, but again, this is uh, right at, at the denouement of the Black Power Movement and the Civil Rights Movement had already come to an end. But this is the city that hip hop experiences when it comes together. 
in the early 1970s. Ogbar destroys commonly held myths about race and class. Americans in general, we tend to have a lazy conflation of race and class, as we said before. Americans, white, black, Asian, and Latino, across educational strata, tend to think of whites as affluent and black people as poor. Although throughout the history of the United States of America, most poor people have been white until the 1990s, again, influx of Latinos, and most black people have not been poor since the 1960s. However, we tend to have these really confusing conflations of race and class, which I think complicate how we interrogate both of those phenomena. So we think about now what the city says about race and class, and with hip-hop artists, how they depict themselves and their notions of authenticity with race and class. The professor also gets students to face their own assumptions and biases. You guys remember I played the video with Kanye West through the wire, the first video. And it was Kanye's first, his song, and he took you to his hometown, and we saw that. And some people saw that, and it was like a sort of one of those inkblot tests where people look at it and see different things. And some people saw, even, in, even though we talked about this after class in your exam, some people still talk about Kanye showed you slums and the ghetto with poverty and drugs and public housing. And again, none of that was in that video, right? Some people saw the Strata Compton video and said the rappers had guns and they were flashing in the video. And this is, you know, the gangster bravado. And again, in the video, the rappers had no guns. The police are the only ones with guns. And so it's kind of fascinating. People will see things that aren't there. And sometimes when things are there, they don't see them, right? But a lot of times, it has to do with our own subjectivities. Keep in mind what Stuart Hall said about encoding and decoding. So some of us are decoding information based on our own subjectivities, which expect black space to be poor. And so when they see Kanye in the black space, all those no housing projects in the video, no people smoking crack or broke down or begging for money. People sort of see this, some people, as a sort of example of exploring poor black space. While students who love hip-hop music may take the course thinking they'll talk about their favorite songs or artists, Ogbar says his goal for the course is to open students' eyes to the rich history and social commentary woven throughout this popular art form. One of the things is that hip-hop itself is a way, for me, the way I teach it, is a way for students to have a history of popular culture and popular music in the United States and an intersection of race, class, and gender simultaneously. So for them, my students come in, they're like, all right, I'm going to watch some hip-hop videos, I'm hear some songs, but then they never, they never heard anything about minstrelsy before. They never heard anything about, um, they've never interrogated mass incarceration for the most part. They've never heard of the Great Migration. They've never talked about uh, housing discrimination and the creation of ghettos, right? So, so I explain, I kind of, in some talks I'll say that if the United States did not have a superstructure of codified racial oppression, we would not have hip-hop. Had, after World War II, the United States said, hey, we have a GI Bill, all American soldiers will have access to an education, healthcare, housing. We would have had hip-hop. We would not have had a Tupac Shakur. Mm -hmm. you know, we probably would have had a Black Panther Party. We would not have had a lot of things. And so all these things are consequences and responses to the circumstances that my students get a chance to understand. And I think a lot of times, they, like I made reference to today, I find that students kind of think of the world as it just is. Like a tree's there because it's a natural part of the environment, not that someone systematically planted that tree and it's determined it's going to be there because aesthetically it makes sense. You just kind of see it there and it's like, you know, it's sort of naturally part there. And I think they think of cities as sort of, you know, that's how Hartford is, that's how, you know, uh, Bridgeport is. But those cities are there because of co a consequence of a series of players who systematically 
and systemically created those cities to look the way they do, mm -hmm. you know? And hip hop is part of that. And hip hop critiques it, right? In a right. way that, you know, R&B doesn't. Right. You know, in a way that right. jazz doesn't. In a way that gospel music doesn't. You know, rock and roll or country. And so hip hop engages it in a way that no other art form I know of does it. Uh, that was great. Uh, Professor Ogbar was always one of my favorites, and uh, I'm glad to hear that his class is still very popular and very it well is. received. Yes, and if you want to read more about it, again, plugging UConn Magazine, head to magazine.uconn.edu slash issue and click on the Fall 2016 Magazine for a little bit more about that class. Isn't it now where you do a mic drop? <laughs> Boom. <laughs> you can't drop these. These are too nice, expensive. Nice try. <laughs> it's the state property. <laughs> Ken. What do you have for us this week? Uh, well, well, we'll move back to a more uh, serious note. This week, earlier this week, uh, we observed Veterans Day. Um, and just recently, there were reports about a growing shortage of burial spaces uh, at Arlington National Cemetery, which was established in 1864 and is managed by the United States Army. Uh, UConn history professor Mickey Michaelia uh, wrote a book, called The Politics of Mourning, Death, and Honor in Arlington National Cemetery, which was published by Harvard University Press, and it was a finalist for last year's 2017 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction, which is a pretty big deal. I sat down with Professor Michaelia to talk about the future of Arlington National Cemetery. Being among the rows of headstones has, a, has an emotional weight to it and a weight that bears the kind of national vision of Arlington. In-ground burials will be impossible within 20, 25 years by the current statistics that the Army has. The Army has been thinking about this and the public and the federal government have been thinking about this pretty much constantly since 1963, when the first really significant and dramatic um, limitations on who could be buried in Arlington were established. It was during the Vietnam War, and it caused an outcry with veterans groups, organized veterans, and also individual veterans and their families. There is some thought of how there might be some modified restrictions placed on who might be eligible versus the initial uh, everyone who had served as a veteran had the option to be buried there. Right. There's been an enormous amount of outreach to veterans communities, families, active duty service people to try to get feedback in an immediate way about what military families, veterans and, and service people would like to see happen. How do they feel about Arlington? How do they feel about Arlington in relation to other national cemeteries, a system which is also under the greatest expansion since the Civil War, both to try to accommodate numbers, thinking about the passing of generations as well as our ongoing wars, but also to make real or realize a dream for many for a long time to have a national cemetery in every state in the Union, every territory, and available to people close to where they live. The layers of surveys... They're both responding to needs and responding to a need for transparency, which was not historically something that the Army was concerned about in its management of Arlington. Unlike the other cemeteries in the national system, overseas military cemeteries, the Army is the uh, management for Arlington National Cemetery, not cemeterial affairs and veterans affairs. Part of this desire to be transparent comes from recent 
controversy and scandal at the cemetery and a reimagining of management, but also from this long history of negotiating the many needs and desires and the historic gravitas and the really profound place that Arlington holds in the American national imaginary that is unlike any place else. It was in 2010 when the report came out about some administrative issues with the management of the cemetery to the point of some misidentified burial plots and other issues which have been addressed at at this point. But as you wrote in the introduction to your book, your point largely was that the official claim of Arlington is to encapsulate all of United States history. You felt it was true. And the arguments on both sides is to try and make that an absolute true statement in continuing into the future. And one of the things that I discuss in the book and that what really motivated writing that book in the way that I did was that I do believe that Arlington National Cemetery as ground that has been hallowed over time by our uses of it and military uses of it, that Arlington National Cemetery does encapsulate the entire history of the country. And it's both profound and beautiful And it's more difficult and awful. As a space, it doesn't just tell one story, but it tells a number of stories and contested stories. It it began as a plantation built and worked by enslaved people. It remains a place where enslaved people are buried. Sitting at the center of it is the plantation home. It was the the plantation of George Washington's adopted grandson, who was also the father-in-law to Robert E. Lee. It's where Robert E. Lee wrote his resignation from the U.S. Army. So it's a site that pulls all of these things together. And one of the things that I really want people to remember as we honor all the people there, we should honor all of the people there and all of those histories. This has been the concern. And the raw numbers, uh, as I see them, about 420,000 veterans and their relatives buried at Arlington National Cemetery, which is less than 700 acres in size, which is not a a big space. Projection, as you mentioned, was in 25 years, there will be no space left. On average, 20 funerals a day. And I think one of the things to, to consider about this as well is that the use of that land and the the memorial uses of that land are running into an inevitable exhaustion. And so at this point, one of the conversations has been, which administration, which Pentagon, which army is going to say we have to stop using this for active burials? Or we have to do something very dramatic, which could be expanding the columbariums, could be internments instead of in-ground burials. And there are a number of of technological uses that might sort of ways that they might use the land to try to expand that and make it more perpetual. But the most obvious answer seems to be to make it a historic site and not an active cemetery. But that raises a lot of questions and it makes people very uncomfortable. I mean, this is a, a history that includes real struggle around the Vietnam War's unknown, and an unknown who was then interred in the 80s and who was identified later as Michael Blassie. He was to be the last unknown ever. The controversy you spoke of before was started by a new unknown that was found. And and the fact that forensic science uh, has advanced to the point where there are virtually no unknowns anymore— that creates that issue. But also, as you you referred to from the Vietnam era, the 
questions and the controversies around conflicts right. uh, involving the United States doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. And the cemetery became a site in the 20th century that has moved into the 21st century that could help negotiate some of those conflicts. I would argue that particularly as we think about contemporary political discourse, Arlington National Cemetery is our common ground if we allow it to be, if we honor all the histories there, and we also honor difference as it's represented there. But that site is also a place that is imbued with so much meaning. The desire to have an unknown for the Vietnam War was pushed in a number of ways by the desire of, of Vietnam War veterans to feel honored and recognized in the way that, that previous veterans and previous wars had been dealt with. And what they saw was not scientific advance. What they saw was disrespect. What they saw was one more hustle. What they saw was just an ongoing process of, of feeling like their service was degraded. The army, on the, on the other hand, was saying, but we've identified everybody. It was the first time that that could be claimed also. And so it's, I think, a, a site that enjoys that much power also elicits enormous controversy, no matter what's happening. Professor McKellie notes that the cemetery became a major tourist attraction in Washington, D.C. area after President Kennedy's uh, funeral in 1963 when people began to visit the gravesite with the eternal flame. I remember that from when I was a kid watching all of that on TV, that, that horrible weekend. Uh, and now there are signs that direct visitors to both the Tomb of the Unknowns, who we talked about, and the Kennedy grave. I was there a few years ago. It's a fascinating place. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you don't think of a cemetery necessarily is a non-renewable resource, but really there's mm. a, a limited amount of space. Absolutely. Well, as she talked about in the piece, uh, there, are na there are national cemeteries all over the country, but not in every state, and uh, that's maybe an option for what they're doing. There is that study that, that she talked about. Well, they will figure it out. All right. Well, now it's time to uh, turn to Tom's History Corner in, in a new era of good feelings in the History Corner. Uh, name The name will be changed probably by our, I would guess, our... 80th episode. <laughs> 100th, maybe. Uh, quick question for you both. Uh, do you know who the mayor of Stores is? Not Mansfield. Stores. Jonathan the Husky. No, I don't know. Well, it used to be Betsy. How can there be a mayor of Stores? Isn't Stores Mansfield? We don't have a mayor of Stores. Okay, uh, But we used to. Oh. So Stores is not a real town. If you're not uh, familiar with that, it's just a, that's a census-designated area, I think is a technical term. But once upon a time, there was a mayor of Stores. Uh, it was a UConn student who would be elected every year prior to homecoming. Oh, okay. Starting in the 1920s, the Mayor of Stores campaign became a highlight of campus social activity. You heard of such great past leaders as Rabadaba Gilman, <laughs> the Happy Roman, P. Elwell Pitney Radley, uh, and such important political parties as the Retrogressive Party and the Teetotaler Party. Here's a uh, Daily Campus report on a Mayor of Stores campaign. Promising more intrigue than the Munich conference, more action than a communist rally, more mudslinging than a WPA job. By the way, where can we get one? Promising, always promising, the campaign for mayor of stores was launched today. So this was uh, this would be a weeks-long event on campus. They would dress up in elaborate, funny costumes. Like a Homecoming King precursor, sort of? Kind of, but they would actually give political speeches and they would have platforms. Wow. And, and the references to the WPA and the other stuff sounds like it was about in the 30s. In the 1930s, yeah. It started in the, the mid-20s. Um, and, uh, you know, the platforms would include things like kidnapping the uh, University of Rhode Island Ram and turning it into Ram sandwiches on rye. <laughs> 
I which love is, it. As far as I can determine, did not actually happen. There Things wasn't like that. a deli on campus then. There was no deli. <laughs> there still was no deli on campus. <laughs> That's true. We could use a deli. Um, ram sandwiches. Did they have any power after they actually were? They had supreme executive. No, they had no yeah. power. It was a um, it was a purely Figure symbolic. Head, yes. Uh, but they were sort of kind of the official kind of campus figure of fun. They would join the Pied Piper Parade, which we've covered in the past. Okay. Um, and uh, as time went on, the characters they would portray uh, got maybe uh, culturally insensitive in some mm, ways. Not so good. And uh, it sort of petered out uh, over the course of the 1960s. There was no sort of formal end to the mayor of stores, at least not that I could find. But by the 1960s, things on campus had become much more serious. Actual student government elections had become much more important. Yep. In the 1920s, when it started, there, were, there was barely any student government at all. And by the 1960s, there were organized political parties right. that were just like the United Students Association, like the USA Party. That was like a... They weren't Democrats and Republicans. They had Yukon-specific political hmm. parties, things like that. So the, the mayor of stores maybe seemed like a figure of fun, too whimsical for the serious times of the yeah. Cold War. But uh, I would like to uh, um, read uh, an excerpt from an editorial about the mayor of stores in, from 1948, which I think maybe sums up the experience. So, Yukonites, we don't say that anymore. So, Yukonites, when the mayor of stores candidates come parading to your door, join in the fun, have a few laughs, and relax. It isn't every day that you can forget the worries and burdens of your studies. As the mayor of stores is the symbol of the spirit of Yukon, raise your spirits and join in the tidings of good times that make up the other half of life at Yukon. The other half. Yeah, I don't know. Does that mean bad Academic tidings of the other? I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it sounds like a fun tradition that uh, it does. maybe uh, like Mr. Yukon. Mr. Yeah, but sort of like in a not a beauty pageant, but no. like a fun comedy thing. <laughs> I'm just picturing a jester hat and a like staff. He's walking. Kind of. Some of them really did. Like uh, some of the pictures, we'll post some. Um, they really had very funny costumes and kind of. Uh, sometimes they would dress up like 19th century politicians, and sometimes oh. they, they dressed up like comic book characters. Things like. Was that. there okay. an official gavel that someone carried around? Or they had to, a to bop people on the head or something. Yeah, to bop people on the head. There was no no head. No bopping. violence. There was no, no violence. violence at the mayor of stores. Wow, lovely. So yeah, that's fun. Mayor of stores. Yeah, fun. And uh, I think that that's a good note to end on. The good tidings. Good tidings. Of UConn life from the mayor of stores. And uh, once again, thank you for listening. Download, subscribe, rate and review. Uh, get our logo tattooed on your body somewhere. <laughs> Thanks again, uh, once again, to everyone who came out for the live podcast. Julie, is there anything you want to add? New UConn Health Journal's out. Yes. Some really good stories about um, research and clinical things going on over at UConn Health. That's at healthjournal.uconn.edu. And I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Cuss me direct. <laughs> Ken, what about you? As usual, UConn uh, today, today.uconn.edu. I will be cranking this stuff out the next couple of weeks. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I am at TJ Breen, a very well-received Twitter account. But <laughs> if you like the History Corner stuff, uh, there's a new account. It's at... Uh, main underscore old. It's awesome, you guys. Uh, it's all kinds of pictures and excerpts of history from Yukon days gone by. It's a lot of fun to do, so uh, please check that out. And if you have any suggestions for things you want to, uh, you want me to research, I've already had a request to find out the first use of a computer on campus. How's that going? Slowly. <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll find it, out. it. We did find the first automobile. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, it's a really, really fun account. I love the pictures you post all right well thanks again for listening everyone and we'll see you in a fortnight <laughs>